0: This performance is a co-production of LoudLit.org and Literal Systems. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain Performed by Mark Devine Chapter 5 I had shut the door, too. Then I turned around, and there he was— "'I used to be scared of him all the time. "'He tanned me so much. "'I reckon I was scared now, too. "'But in a minute I see I was mistaken. "'That is, after the first jolt, as you may say, "'when my breath sort of hitched, "'he being so unexpected. "'But right away after, "'I see I weren't scared of him worth bothering about. "'He was most fifty, and he looked it. "'His hair was long and tangled and greasy "'and hung down, "'and you could see his eyes shining through "'like he was behind vines. "'It was all black, no gray.' "'So was his long, mixed-up whiskers. "'There weren't no color in his face. "'Where his face showed, it was white. "'Not like another man's white, but a white to make a body sick. "'A white to make a body's flesh crawl. "'A tree-toed white. A fish-belly white. "'As for his clothes? Just rags, that was all. "'He had one ankle resting on t'other knee. "'The boot on that foot was busted, "'and two of his toes stuck through, "'and he worked them now and then. "'His hat was laying on the floor.' An old black slouch with the top caved in, like a lid. I stood a-looking at him. He sat there looking at me with his chair tilted back a little. I set the candle down. I noticed the window was up, so we had clumb in by the shed. He kept a-looking me all over. By and by, he says, Start your clothes. Very. You think you're a good deal of a big bug, don't you?' "'Maybe I am. Maybe I ain't,' I says. "'Don't give me none of your lips,' says he. "'You've put on considerable many frills since I've been away. "'I'll take you down a peg before I get done with you. "'You're educated, too, they say, can read and write. "'You think you're better than your father now, don't you, because he can't. "'I'll take it out of you. "'Who told you you might meddle with such highfalutin foolishness, eh? "'Who told you you could?' Well, the widow, she told me. "'The widow, eh? "'And who told the widow she could put in her shovel "'about a thing that ain't none of her business?' Nobody never told her. Well, I'll learn her how to meddle. And looky here, you dropped that school, you hear? I'll learn people to bring up a boy to put on airs over his own father and let on to be better than what he is. You let me catch you fooling around that school again, you hear? Your mother couldn't read and she couldn't write another before she died. None of the family could before they died. I can't. And here you're a-swelling yourself up like this. I ain't the man to stand it, you hear? Say, let me hear you read. I took up a book and begun something about General Washington and the wars. When I'd read about half a minute, he fetched the book a whack with his hand and knocked it across the house. He says, "'It's so, you can do it. I had my doubts when you told me. Now looky here. You stop that putting on frills. I won't have it. I'll lay for you, my smarty. And if I catch you about that school, I'll tan you good. First you know you'll get religion, too. I never see such a son.' He took up a little blue-and-yaller picture of some cows and a boy and says, "'What's this?' "'Something they give me for learning my lessons good.' He tore it up and says, "'I'll give you something better. I'll give you a cowhide.' He sat there a-mumbling and a in a minute, and then he says, "'Ain't you a sweet-scented dandy, though, "'a bed and bedclothes and a looking glass "'and a piece of carpet on the floor.' And your own father got to sleep with the hogs in the tan yard. I never see such a son. I bet I'll take some of these frills out of you before I'm done with you. Why, there ain't no end to your airs. they say you're rich. Hey, how's that? They lie, that's how. Looky here, mind how you talk to me. I'm a-standin' about all I can stand now. So don't give me no sass. I've been in town two days, and I ain't heard nothing but about how you being rich. I heard about it away down the river, too. That's why I come. You get me that money tomorrow. I want it. I ain't got no money. It's a lie. Judge Thatcher's got it. You get it. I want it. I ain't got no money, I tell you. You ask Judge Thatcher. He'll tell you the same. All right, I'll ask him. And I'll make him pungle, too, or I'll know the reason why. Say, how much you got in your pocket? I want it. I ain't got only a dollar, and I want that to... It don't make no difference what you want it for. You just shell it out. He took it and bit it to see if it was good. And then he said he was going downtown to get some whiskey. Said he hadn't had a drink all day. When he had got out on the shed, he put his head in again and cussed me for putting on frills and trying to be better than him. And when I reckoned he was gone, he come back and put his head in again and told me to mind about that school because he was going to lay for me and lick me if I didn't drop that. Next day, he was drunk, and he went to Judge Thatcher's and bully-ragged him and tried to make him give up the money, but he couldn't, and then he swore he'd make the law force him. The judge and the widow went to law to get the court to take me away from him and let one of them be my guardian, but it was a new judge that had just come, and he didn't know the old man, so he said courts mustn't interfere and separate families if they could help it, said he'd rather not take a child away from its father. "'so Judge Thatcher and the widow had to quit on the business. "'That pleased the old man till he couldn't rest. "'He said he'd cowhide me till I was black and blue "'if I didn't raise some money for him. "'I borrowed three dollars from Judge Thatcher, "'and Pap took it and got drunk, "'and went a-blowing around and cussing and whooping and carrying on, "'and kept it up all over town with a tin pan till most midnight. "'Then they jailed him, "'and next day they had him before court "'and jailed him again for a week. "'But he said he was satisfied,' "'said he was boss of his son, and he'd make it warm for him. "'When he got out, the new judge said he was a-going to make a man of him. "'So he took him to his own house and dressed him up clean and nice "'and had him to breakfast and dinner and supper with the family "'and was just old pie to him, so to speak. "'And after supper he talked to him about temperance and such things "'till the old man cried and said he'd been a fool and fooled away his life. "'But now he was a-going to turn over a new leaf "'and be a man nobody wouldn't be ashamed of.' and he hoped the judge would help him and not look down on him. The judge said he could hug him for them words, so he cried, and his wife, she cried again. Pap said he'd been a man that had always been misunderstood before, and the judge said he believed it. The old man said that what a man wanted that was down was sympathy, and the judge said it was so, so they cried again. And when it was bedtime, the old man rose up and held out his hand and says, Look at it, gentlemen and ladies all. Take a hold of it. Shake it. There's a hand that was the hand of a hog, but it ain't so no more. It's the hand of a man that started in on a new life and will die before he'll go back. You mark them words. Don't forget I said them. It's a clean hand now. Shake it. Don't be feared. So they shook it, one after the other, all around and cried. The judge's wife, she kissed it. Then the old man, he signed a pledge, made his mark. The judge said it was the holiest time on record, or something like that. Then they tucked the old man into a beautiful room, which was the spare room. And in the night sometime, he got powerful thirsty and clumbed out onto the porch roof and slid down a stanchion and traded his new coat for a jug of forty rod and clumbed back again and had a good old time. And towards daylight, he crawled out again, drunk as a fiddler, and rolled off the porch and broke his left arm in two places and was most froze to death when somebody found him after sunup. And when they come to look at that spare room they had to take soundings before they could navigate it. The judge, he felt kind of sore. He said he reckoned a body could reform the old man with a shotgun, maybe, but he didn't know no other way. Chapter 6 Well, pretty soon the old man was up and around again, and then he went for Judge Thatcher in the courts to make him give up that money, and he went for me, too, for not stopping school. He catched me a couple of times and thrashed me, but I went to school just the same and dodged him or outrun him most of the time. I didn't want to go to school much before, but I reckon I'd go now to spite Pap. That law trial was a slow business. Appeared like they weren't ever going to get started on it. So every now and then I'd borrow two or three dollars off of the judge for him to keep from getting a cow hiding. Every time he got money, he got drunk. And every time he got drunk, he raised cane around town. And every time he raised cane, he got jailed. He was just suited. This kind of thing was right in his line. He got to hanging around the widows too much, and so she told him at last that if he didn't quit using around there, she would make trouble for him. Well, wasn't he mad? He said he would show who was Huck Finn's boss. So he watched out for me one day in the spring and catched me, and took me up the river about three mile in a skiff, and crossed over to the Illinois shore, where it was woody and there weren't no houses but an old log hut in a place where the timbers was so thick you couldn't find it if you didn't know where it was. He kept me with him all the time, and I never got a chance to run off. We lived in that old cabin, and he always locked the door and put the key under his head nights. He had a gun, which he had stole, I reckon, and we fished and hunted, and that was what we lived on. Every little while, he locked me in and went down to the store three miles to the ferry and traded fish and game for whiskey, and fetched it home, and got drunk, and had a good time, and licked me. The widow, she found out where I was by and by, and she sent a man over to try to get hold of me. But Pap drove him off with the gun, and it weren't long after that till I was used to being where I was, and liked it. All but the cowhide part. It was kind of lazy and jolly, laying off comfortable all day, smoking and fishing, and no books nor study. Two months or more run along, and my clothes got to be all rags and dirt, and I didn't see how I'd ever got to like it so well at the widow's, where you had to wash and eat on a plate and comb up and go to bed and get up regular and be forever bothering over a book and have old Miss Watson pecking at you all the time. I didn't want to go back no more. I had stopped cussing because the widow didn't like it, but now I took to it again because Pap hadn't no objections. It was pretty good times up in the woods there, take it all around. But by and by, a pap got too handy with his hickory, and I couldn't stand it. I was all over welts. He got to going away so much, too, and locking me in. Once he locked me in and was gone three days. It was dreadful lonesome. I judged he had got drowned, and I wasn't ever going to get out any more. I was scared. I made up my mind I would fix up some way to leave there. I had tried to get out of that cabin many a time, but I couldn't find no way. "'There war not a window to it big enough for a dog to get through. "'I couldn't get up the chimbley. It was too narrow. "'The door was thick, solid oak slabs. "'Pap was pretty careful not to leave a knife or anything in the cabin when he was away. "'I reckon I had hunted the place over as much as a hundred times. "'Well, I was most all the time at it, "'because it was about the only way to put in the time. "'But this time I found something at last. "'I found an old rusty wood saw without any handle.' It was laid in between a rafter and the clapboards of the roof. I greased it up and went to work. There was an old horse blanket nailed against the logs at the far end of the cabin behind the table to keep the wind from blowing through the chinks and putting the candle out. I got under the table and raised the blanket and went to work to saw a section of the big bottom log out, big enough to let me through. Well, it was a good long job, but I was getting towards the end of it when I heard Pap's gun in the woods... I got rid of the signs of my work and dropped a blanket and hid my saw, and pretty soon Pap come in. Pap weren't in a good humor, so he was his natural self. He said he was downtown and everything was going wrong. His lawyer said he reckoned he would win his lawsuit and get the money if they ever got started on the trial, but then there was ways to put it off a long time, and Judge Thatcher knowed how to do it. And he said people allowed there'd be another trial to get me away from him and give me to the widow for my guardian and they guessed it would win this time. This shook me up considerable, because I didn't want to go back to the widows any more and be so cramped up and civilized, as they call it. Then the old man got to cussin', and cussed everything and everybody he could think of, and then cussed them all over again to make sure he hadn't skipped any, and after that, he polished off with a kind of general cuss all around, including a considerable parcel of people which he didn't know the names of, and so called them what's-his-name when he got to them, and went right along with this cussing. He said he would like to see the widow get me. He said he would watch out, and if they tried to come any such game on him, he knowed a to play six or seven mile off to stow me in, where they might hunt till they dropped, and they couldn't find me. That made me pretty uneasy again, but only for a minute. I reckoned I wouldn't stay on hand till he got that chance. The old man made me go to the skiff and fetch the things he had got. There was a fifty-pound sack of cornmeal and a side of bacon ammunition, and a four-gallon jug of whiskey, and an old book, and two newspapers for wadding, besides some tow. I towed it up a load, and went back and set down on the bow of the skiff to rest. I thought it all over, and I reckon I would walk off with the gun and some lines, and take to the woods when I run away. I guessed I wouldn't stay in one place, but just tramp right across the country, mostly night times, and hunt and fish to keep alive, "'and so get so far away that the old man nor the widow "'could never find me any more. "'I judged I would saw out and leave that night "'if Pap got drunk enough, and I reckoned he would. "'I got so full of it, I didn't notice how long I was staying "'till the old man hollered and asked me "'whether I was asleep or drowned. "'I got the things all up to the cabin, "'and then it was about dark. "'While I was cooking supper, the old man took a swig or two "'and got sort of warmed up and went to ripping again.' He had been drunk over in town and laid in the gutter all night, and he was a sight to look at. A body would have thought he was Adam. He was just all mutt. Whenever his liquor begun to work, he most always went for the government. This time, he says, Call this government. Why, just look at it and see what it's like. Here's the law standing ready to take a man's son away from him, a man's own son, which he has had all the trouble and all the anxiety and all the expense of raising. Yes, just as that man has got that son raised at last and ready to go to work and begin to do something for him and give him a rest, the law up and goes for him. And they call that government. That ain't all Another, The law backs that old judge stature up and helps him to keep me out of my property. Here's what the law does. The law takes a man worth $6,000 and upwards and jams him into an old trap of a cabin like this and lets him go round in clothes that ain't fitting for a hog. They call that government. A man can't get his rights in a government like this. Sometimes I've a mighty notion to just leave the country for good and all. Yes, and I told him so. I told old Thatcher so to his face. Lots of them heard me and can tell what I said. Says I, for two cents, I'd leave the blamed country and never come a near it again. Them's the very words. I says, look at my hat, if you call it a hat. But the lid raises up and the rest of it goes down till it's below my chin. And then it ain't rightly a hat at all but more like my head was shoved up through a giant stovepipe. Look at it, says I. Such a hat for me to wear. One of the wealthiest men in this town, if I could get my rights. Oh, yes, this is a wonderful government, wonderful. Why, looky here. There was a free nigger there from Ohio, a mule ladder, most as white as a white man. He had the whitest shirt on you ever see, too, and the shiniest hat. And there ain't a man in that town that's got as fine clothes as what he had. And he had a gold watch and chain and a silver-headed cane, the awfulest old gray-headed nabob in the state. And what do you think? They said he was a professor in a college and could talk all kinds of languages and know everything, and that ain't the worst. They said he could vote when he was at home. Well that let me out. Thinks I, what is this country a-coming to? It was lection day, and I was just about to go and vote myself if I weren't too drunk to get there. But when they told me there was a state in this country where they'd let that nigger vote, I drawed out. I says, I'll never vote again. Them's the very words I said. They all heard me, and the country may rot for all me. I'll never vote again as long as I live. And to see the cool way of that nigger, why, he wouldn't have give me the road if I hadn't shoved him out of the way. I says to the people, why ain't this nigger put up at auction and sold? That's what I want to know. And what do you reckon they said? Why, they said he couldn't be sold till he'd been in the state six months, and he hadn't been there that long yet. There, now, that's a specimen they call that government that can't sell a free nigger till he's been in the state six months. Here's a government that calls itself government and lets on to be a government and thinks it is a government and yet's got to set stock still for six whole months before it can take a hold of a prowling, thieving, infernal, white-shirted free nigger and... Pap was a goin' on, so he never noticed where his old limber legs was taking him to. So he went head over heels over the tub of salt pork and barked both shins, and the rest of his speech was all the hottest kind of language, mostly hove at the nigger and the government, though he give the tub some, too, all along, here and there. He hopped around the cabin considerable, first on one leg and then on the other, holding first one shin and then the other one and at last he let out with his left foot all of a sudden and fetched the tub a rattling kick. But it weren't good judgment, because that was the boot that had a couple of his toes leaking out of the front end of it. So now he raised a howl that fairly made a body's hair raise, and down he went in the dirt and rolled there and held his toes, and the cussin' he done then laid over anything he had ever done previous. He said so his own self afterwards. He had heard old Salberry Hagen in his best days, and he said it laid over him, too. But I reckon that was sort of piling it on, maybe. After supper, Pap took the jug and said he had enough whiskey there for two drunks and one delirium tremens. That was always his word. I judged he would be blind drunk in about an hour, and then I would steal the key or saw myself out, one or t'other. He drank and drank and tumbled down on his blankets by and by, but luck didn't run my way. He didn't go sound asleep, but was uneasy. He groaned and moaned and thrashed around this way and that for a long time. At last I got so sleepy, I couldn't keep my eyes open all I could do. And so before I knowed what I was about, I was sound asleep and the candle burning. I don't know how long I was asleep, but all of a sudden there was an awful scream and I was up. There was Pap looking wild and skipping around every which way and yelling about snakes. He said they was crawling up his legs and then he would give a jump and scream and say one had bit him on the cheek but I couldn't see no snakes. He started and run around and round the cabin hollering take him off, take him off, he's biting me on the neck. I never see a man look so wild in the eyes. Pretty soon he was all fagged out and fell down panting. Then he rolled over and over wonderful fast kicking things every which way and striking and grabbing at the air with his hands and screaming and saying there was devils a hold of him. He wore out by and by and laid still a while, moaning. Then he laid stiller and didn't make a sound. I could hear the owls and wolves away off in the woods, and it seemed terrible. Still, he was laying over by the corner. By and by, he raised up part way and listened, with his head to one side. He says very low, "Tramp, tramp, tramp. That's the dead tramp, tramp, tramp. They're coming after me, but I won't go. Oh, they're here." "'Don't touch me, don't! Hands off the cold! Let go! Oh, let a poor devil alone!' Then he went down on all fours and crawled off, begging them to let him alone. And he rolled himself up in his blanket and wallowed in under the old pine table, still a-begging. And then he went to crying. I could hear him through the blanket. By and by he rolled out and jumped on his feet, looking wild. And he see me, and he went for me. He chased me round and round the place with a clasp knife, calling me the Angel of Death.' and saying he would kill me, and then I couldn't come for him no more. I begged and told him I was only Huck, but he laughed such a screechy laugh and roared and cussed and kept on chasing me up. Once when I turned short and dodged under his arm, he made a grab and got me by the jacket between my shoulders, and I thought I was gone, but I slid out of the jacket quick as lightning and saved myself. Pretty soon he was all tired out and dropped down with his back against the door and said he would rest a minute and then kill me. He put his knife under him, and said he would sleep and get strong, and then he would see who was who. So he dozed off pretty soon. By and by I got the old split-bottom chair and clumb up as easy as I could not to make any noise and got down the gun. I slipped the ramrod down it to make sure it was loaded, then I laid it across the turnip barrel, pointing towards Pap, and sat down behind it to wait for him to stir. And how slow and still the tide did drag along. Chapter 7 Get up! What you bout? I opened my eyes and looked around, trying to make out where I was. It was after sunup, and I had been sound asleep. Pap was standing over me looking sour and sick too. He says, What you doing with this gun? I judged he didn't know nothing about what he had been doing, so I says, Somebody tried to get in, so I was laying for him. Why didn't you rouse me out? Well, I tried to, but I couldn't. I couldn't budge you. Well, all right. Don't stand there palavering all day, but out with you and see if there's a fish on the lines for breakfast. I'll be along in a minute. He unlocked the door, and I cleared out up the river bank. I noticed some pieces of limbs and such things floating down, and a sprinkling of bark, so I knowed the river had begun to rise. I reckon I would have great times now if I was over at the town. The June rise used to be always luck for me because as soon as that rise begins, here comes cordwood floating down, and pieces of log rafts, sometimes a dozen logs together, so all you have to do is to catch them and sell them to the woodyards and the sawmill. I went along up the bank with one eye out for Pap and t'other other one out for what the rise might fetch along. Well, all at once, here comes a canoe, just a beauty, too, about thirteen or fourteen foot long, riding high like a duck. I shot head first off of the bank like a frog, clothes and all on, and struck out for the canoe. I just expected there'd be somebody laying down in it, because people often done that to fool folks. When a chap had pulled a skiff out most to it, they'd raise up and laugh at him. But it weren't so this time. It was a drift canoe, sure enough, and I clumb in and paddled her ashore. Thinks I, the old man will be glad when he sees this. She's worth ten dollars. But when I got to shore, Pap wasn't in sight yet, and as I was running her into a little creek like a gully, all hung over with vines and willows, I struck another idea. I judged I'd hide her good, and then, instead of taking to the woods when I run off, I'd go down the river about fifty mile and camp in one place for good, and not have such a rough time tramping on foot. It was pretty close to the shanty, and I thought I heard the old man coming all the time, but I got her hid. And then I out and looked around a bunch of willows, and there was the old man down the path a piece, just drawing a bead on a bird with his gun. So he hadn't seen anything. When he got along, I was hard at it, taking up a trot line. He abused me a little for being so slow, but I told him I fell in the river, and that was what made me so long. I knowed he would see I was wet, and then he would be asking questions. We got five catfish off the lines and went home. While we laid off after breakfast to sleep up, both of us being about wore out, I got to thinking that if I could fix up some way to keep Pap and the widow from trying to follow me, it would be a certainer thing than trustin' to luck to get far enough off before they missed me. You see, all kinds of things might happen. Well, I didn't see no way for a while, but by and by, Pap raised up a minute to drink another barrel of water, and he says, Another time a man comes a prowlin' round here, you roust me out, you hear? That man weren't here for no good. I'd a shot him. Next time you roust me out, you hear? Then he dropped down and went to sleep again. But what he had been saying give me the very idea I wanted. I says to myself, I can fix it now so nobody won't think of following me. About twelve o'clock we turned out and went along up the bank. The river was coming up pretty fast and lots of driftwood going by on the rise. By and by along comes part of a log raft, nine logs fast together. We went out with the skiff and towed it ashore. Then we had dinner. Anybody but Pap would have waited and seen the day through so as to catch more stuff but that weren't Pap's style nine logs was enough for one time he must shove right over to town and sell so he locked me in and took the skiff and started off towing the raft about half past 3 I judged he wouldn't come back that night I waited till I reckon he had got a good start then I out with my saw and went to work on that log again before he was t'other side of the river I was out of the hole Him and his raft was just a speck on the water away off yonder. I took the sack of cornmeal and took it to where the canoe was hid, and shoved the vines and branches apart and put it in. Then I done the same with the side of bacon, then the whiskey jug. I took all the coffee and sugar there was, and all the ammunition. I took the wadding, I took the bucket and gourd. I took a dipper and a tin cup, and my old saw and two blankets, and the skillet and the coffee pot. I took fish lines and matches and other things everything that was worth a cent. I cleaned out the place. I wanted an axe, but there wasn't any, only the one out at the woodpile, and I knowed why I was going to leave that. I fetched out the gun, and now I was done. I had wore the ground a good deal crawling out of the hole and dragging out so many things, so I fixed that as good as I could from the outside by scattering dust on the place, which covered up the smoothness in the sawdust. Then I fixed the piece of log back into its place, and put two rocks under it and one against it to hold it there, for it was bent up at that place and didn't quite touch ground. If you stood four or five foot away and didn't know it was sawed, you would never notice it. And besides, this was the back of the cabin, and it weren't likely anybody would go fooling around there. It was all grass clear to the canoe, so I hadn't left the track. I followed around to see. I stood on the bank and looked out over the river, all safe. So I took the gun and went up a piece into the woods, and was hunting around for some birds when I see a wild pig. Hogs soon went wild in them bottoms after they got away from the prairie farms. I shot this fellow and took him into camp. I took the axe and smashed in the door. I beat it and hacked it considerable a doing it. I fetched the pig in and took him back nearly to the table and hacked into his throat with the axe and laid him down on the ground to bleed. I say ground because it was ground, hard-packed and no boards. Well, next... "'I took an old sack and put a lot of big rocks in it, "'all I could drag, and I started it from the pig "'and dragged it to the door and through the woods down to the river "'and dumped it in, and down it sunk out of sight. "'You could see easy that something had been dragged over the ground. "'I did wish Tom Sawyer was there. "'I knowed he would take an interest in this kind of business "'and throw in the fancy touches. "'Nobody could spread himself like Tom Sawyer in such a thing as that. "'Well, last I pulled out some of my hair.' and blooded the axe good, and stuck it on the backside, and slung the axe in the corner. Then I took up the pig and held him to my breast with my jacket, so he couldn't drip. Then I got a good piece below the house and then dumped him into the river. Now I thought of something else, so I went and got the bag of meal and my old saw out of the canoe, and fetched them to the house. I took the bag to where it used to stand, and ripped a hole in the bottom of it with the saw, for there weren't no knives and forks on the place." Papped done everything with his clasp knife about the cooking. Then I carried the sack about a hundred yards across the grass and through the willows east of the house to a shallow lake that was five mile wide and full of rushes, and ducks too, you might say, in the season. There was a slow, or a creek leading out of it, on the other side that went miles away, I don't know where, but it didn't go to the river. The meal sifted out and made a little track all the way to the lake. I dropped Pap's whetstone there, too, so as to look like it had been done by accident. Then I tied up the rip in the meal sack with a string so it wouldn't leak no more and took it and my saw to the canoe again. It was about dark now, so I dropped the canoe down the river under some willows that hung over the bank and waited for the moon to rise. I made fast to a willow, then I took a bite to eat and by and by laid down in the canoe to smoke a pipe and lay out a plan. I says to myself, They'll follow the track of that sack full of rocks to the shore and then drag the river for me. And they'll follow that meal track to the lake and go browsing down the creek that leads out of it to find the robbers that killed me and took the things. They won't ever hunt the river for anything but my dead carcass. They'll soon get tired of that and won't bother no more about me. All right, I can stop anywhere I want to. Jackson's Island is good enough for me. I know that island pretty well and nobody ever comes there. And then I can paddle over to town nights and slink around and pick up things I want. Jackson's Island's the place. I was pretty tired, and the first thing I knowed I was asleep. When I woke up, I didn't know where I was for a minute. I sat up and looked around, a little scared. Then I remembered. The river looked miles and miles across. The moon was so bright I could have counted the drift logs that went a-slippin' along, black and still, hundreds of yards out from shore. Everything was dead quiet, and it looked late and smelt late. You know what I mean. I don't know the words to put it in. I took a good gap in a stretch and was just going to unhitch and start when I heard a sound away over the water. I listened. Pretty soon I made it out. It was that dull kind of a regular sound that comes from oars working in rowlocks when it's a still night. I peeped out through the willow branches, and there it was, a skiff away across the water. I couldn't tell how many was in it, "'It kept a-coming, and when it was abreast of me, "'I see there weren't but one man in it. "'Thinks I, maybe it's Pap, though I weren't expecting him. "'He dropped below me with the current, "'and by and by he came a swinging up shore in the easy water, "'and he went by so close I could have reached out the gun and touched him. "'Well, it was Pap, sure enough, and sober, too, by the way he laid his oars. "'I didn't lose no time. "'The next minute I was a spinning downstream soft but quick in the shade of the bank.' I made two mile and a half and then struck out a quarter of a mile or more towards the middle of the river because pretty soon I would be passing the ferry landing and people might see me and hail me. I got out amongst the driftwood and then laid down in the bottom of the canoe and let her float. I laid there and had a good rest and a smoke out of my pipe, looking away into the sky. Not a cloud in it. The sky looks ever so deep when you lay down on your back in the moonshine. I never knowed it before and how far a body can hear on the water such nights. I heard people talking at the ferry landing. I heard what they said, too, every word of it. One man said it was getting towards the long days and the short nights now. T'other one said this weren't one of the short ones, he reckoned. And then they laughed, and he said it over again, and they laughed again. Then they waked up another fellow and told him and laughed. But he didn't laugh. He ripped out something brisk and said let him alone. The first fellow said he allowed to tell it to his old woman. She would think it was pretty good, but he said that weren't nothing to some of the things he had said in his time. I heard one man say it was nearly three o'clock, and he hoped daylight wouldn't wait more than about a week longer. After that, the talk got further and further away, and I couldn't make out the words any more, but I could hear the mumble, and now and then a laugh too. But it seemed a long ways off. I was away below the ferry now. I rose up, and there was Jackson's Island, about two mile and a half downstream heavy-timbered and standing up out of the middle of the river, big and dark and solid, like a steamboat without any lights. There weren't any signs of the bar at the head. It was all underwater now. It didn't take me long to get there. I shot past the head at a ripping rate, the current was so swift, and then got into the dead water and landed on the side towards the Illinois shore. I run the canoe into a deep dent in the bank that I knowed about. I had to part the willow branches to get in, and when I made fast, nobody could have seen the canoe from the outside. I went up and sat down on a log at the head of the island and looked out on the big river and the black driftwood and away over to the town three mile away, where there was three or four lights twinkling. A monstrous big lumber raft was about a mile upstream coming along down with a lantern in the middle of it. I watched it come creeping down, and when it was most abreast of where I stood, I heard a man say, "Stern oars there! Heave ahead to starboard! I heard that just as plain as if the man was by my side. There was a little gray in the sky now, so I stepped into the woods and laid down for a nap before breakfast. This presentation is dedicated by Gordon W. Draper to all of those who will enjoy this Mark Twain masterpiece.